Michael Levitin, and this is episode 20 of The Tell. I've always had low expectations for other people. Um, it always seemed to me that most people were pretty horrible. Um, in my family, there was never any like, uh, you know, people are really good inside mostly or, you know, um, <laughs> give them a break. They're doing their best. Uh, it seemed pretty clear people were not doing their best. Um, anyone who said people were good inside seemed insane. I mean, <laughs> had they ever hung out with anybody? <laughs> had they ever left their house? Anyway, um, that was my vision from childhood. And I used to actually regularly, you know, test people. I would just like find out someone had done something wrong and I would just see how far they'd go with lying, for instance. And I would I would push them and pretend to believe them further and further until the kid, you know, uh, just lied so far. And I'd be like, you know, I knew all along, you know, you could have admitted it any time. I just wanted to see how far you'd lie. Um, I kept doing this for years, up until like probably eight years ago. One time, um, someone who always claimed to be right, like almost there, um, and then would never show up. Uh, I claimed there was an emergency happening and kept asking if they were close, and they kept saying they were. Um, and of course, they never showed up. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> so if there had been a real emergency, it would have been really bad. Um, someone tried to sublet my apartment that I knew was going to try to swindle me. I, I just let them try to swindle me. I was like, well, let me give them a chance. Maybe, maybe they'll uh, be better than I think. But they tried to swindle me. So everyone failed every moral test I ever tried. I guess it's entrapment. I guess this isn't a nice thing to do, especially when I would tell them, by the way, it was a moral test and you failed, um, which was the number one way to make someone hate you forever. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd be like, you did the bad thing. Why are you mad at me for pointing it out? But of course they were mad at me. And so I stopped doing that. Anyway, um, the stories this episode are from Peter Smith and me, Michael Levitin. Um, and these are stories of expectations uh, and whether people will meet them whether they will be better or worse than you think they're going to be. This is episode 20 of The Tell. I grew up in a uh, little town in Illinois, uh, the West, built off the railroad, right? You know, the railroad was first, and then the towns came after that. My town was built off the railroad. I lived on 3rd Street, and then it was 2nd, 1st, and the railroad. So it just kind of like was built off of that. And I was at the corner of the county line, and then on the other side was Oak Street, and I went to Oak School. So the town, my little world, was very tiny. And uh, it was cute. Cute as fuck, right? It was like uh, a French, te you know, like a foreign language textbook. It'd be like, the town, you know? And like, l'école, l'église, you know? Chez moi, they were all like in one block, you know? <laughs> in a little illustration. That's how, where I grew up. Uh, and... It was adorable, and one summer it became dangerous because there was a little thing at Oak School called Safety Village where it was this like fenced off zone near the highway on the other side of the elementary school that was a little, someone had built, I don't know who what it was, a tiny mini town of little square buildings that would say like school and uh, church, similar to the textbook. And on a grid system, there was a little kind of cement, little roads that they had, I don't know where they kept them, little like power, you know, scooter things that kids would go to this place for a week and you'd get a car <laughs> and you would learn things like, uh, you know, how to wait for people to cross the road or they'd have firefighters come and reenact fires and it was, I mean, it was like a week of, I loved it because... You know, you're entering into these simulations, right? This kind of immersive theater kind of stuff. 
and I was six, and <laughs> it, hit, it just was right, you know? I was like, oh, okay, we're all under the same, okay. This is, we're, st we're, we're playing here, we're playing in a mini version of our own reality, you know? I loved it. I felt right at home, and there were these kind of high school kids who basically babysat us for a week, and by the end we became friends, and the final day, I didn't know this, was a test. And, uh, you, you know, we were doing these activities, and, we'd, you know, we'd, you had to take your little scooter plastic thing and go around the town and make a loop and then drop it off, whatever. So I kind of make it around and, you know, waving to people, and... I make it around the corner to where we're stopping, and there's, I don't know what her name was, but she'd been with us all week. And she had Tootsie Rolls, right? And she was like, you want a Tootsie Roll? And I said, yes, friend. You know, like, sure, I finished. This is a party, right? A bon voyage. I know safety now, right? I then find out, at the end of the day, my mother has received a paper, my little, you know, evaluation sheet. And it says, you know, bullet points like fire, well, et cetera, you know, traffic, whatever. Strangers was a category. <laughs> and it said, strangers, I still have this, colon, needs work, <laughs> period. Peter is too generous. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, here, hello, all of you, telling my life story in front of you. But I was... You know, like, strangers, there were no strangers. This friend, apparently this Tootsie Roll was a test. A friend gave me candy and I failed it, apparently. <laughs> so I internalized that immediately, all right? And this was the beginning of summer, you know, school ended, but then you go back to school for another week. Uh, can walk to my house from this place. So when it ended, I, you know, the walk home... The walk there every day and the walk back was all fun, friends. And then the final walk back home, now I had to, I was afraid of it. Or like now anything could happen. And I'm equipped with no skills to handle it. <laughs> Luckily, this was the summer where there was a red van going around town. Oh, the red van. Well, watch out for the red van. Can you just come home before dark? The red van, you know? Every day, uh, my sister would bring it up. You know, it was always kind of like you'd bring it up to scare somebody else. Kind of a weapon, this red van. In my house was a spooky pink Victorian house on like a little hill, all right? Like if you've seen Psycho, you know, it's that. But pink, you know. The inside was just as terrifying and creaky and, uh, you know, like just spooky. A spooky old Victorian. And my room was right above the kitchen, and my mom was an alcoholic, and she would drink all night. So I would not be able to fall asleep because she'd watch TV right below my bed. I shared it with my brother. And for a while, I would look out the window in the house, kind of kitty corner that I could see across the street. The TV was always on all night, all night long. I'd fall asleep, wake up, one morning walking to Safety Village at like 7.30, clomping TV still on, you know. Spooky. <laughs> I became, yeah, clap, clap, clap. <laughs> Little noises we can make. <laughs> I, because I fear this house, you know? I don't know who lives in there. Apparently there's a guy, never seen him, has a little, you know, tiny little driveway, cars there sometimes, gone for weeks and then back. You know, Boo Radley, you know Boo Radley? 
This is my Buradley. So, I'm in this spooky pink Victorian. It's summer. I love the summer. You know, I'm a Virgo. So, my brother and I are trying to have fun, right? So we're uh, snorting country time lemonade and strapping lawn chairs to skateboards and going down our driveway and sitting on it and then hitting the curb across the street and then flying into the neighbor's lawn. That was the fun to be had. So one day I've got a lemonade stand going, you know, show business, right? Also, this like wasn't advertised. I was like, I, it, the crowd is amazing for not, you know, being told when or where this event is taking place. Uh, congratulations. I have a lemonade stand going with my brother, and hmm, look over, and there's an old man on the driveway, kitty corner, television house, old man, you know. Uh, his pants were like up here, right? White shirt, just one of those old guys, old white guys, smiling, looking at us, selling lemonade, entrepreneurs. <laughs> he walks over, and of course, you know, I'm, hello, yes, lemonade, cheery, whatever, trying to make a buck. He comes up, and he's like, do you boys like games? And I, of course, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. He says, I got a lot of games in my basement. Do you want to come pick out a game in my basement? My brother and I look at each other, absolutely. <laughs> Let's go. We just abandoned the cash at the lemonade stand. <laughs> go kitty corner across the street to this unsuspecting kind of ranch house, just a little tiny flat, little tiny, you know? And walk up toward the side driveway, and then all of a sudden realize there's a very steep hill that has been secretly behind this house this entire time, my entire life. Walk down this hill, you know, like that. Get to the back of his house, and there is a... It's probably this, the staircase width. Um, he has a sunken basement into this hill, if you can imagine. First, from the front, looks like one. The back, there's two levels. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, th this is my drag. You know what I mean? Like, the oh, the reveal of two floors. I loved it. <laughs> uh, you know, I was like, oh, a body can be whatever it wants to be from whatever, you know? <laughs> and he slides open his full glass wall, right? And into this white rectangle room, like fully clean lines, fully white, one of those push-up ceilings, you know, with the little uh, crosses, whatever. And the floor was AstroTurf. So it was just AstroTurf and like a built-in closet over there, but it was all white and clean, and I could see where like the stools had been on the ground for a long time over there, and a little bar had been there at one point. And I had been living in a little pink Victorian, and I had never seen a clean white room before. A void, like space, you know, without stuff everywhere, you know. So I felt expansive in this room. I was like, well, you know, this is pre, I haven't been to a dance studio yet, no. I hadn't seen Broadway yet. I hadn't been in that kind of room, no. So here I am in this expansive room, ready to move. He walks over, far over there, opens this closet door. This big, 
filled board games. Old wooden stack stacks like shoved in, just a wall of you know little names, one word, whatever. A smount, it, it, it was suffocating the amount of fun you could have in this closet. And my brother and I, you know, I can't think of a closet joke right now. Well, I was told not to memorize this. Again, Michael. <laughs> so, I'm looking at these games with my brother, and I see one and it says jarts. And I'm like, pull that out. I pull it out of the wall. This guy's kind of hovering over us, you know. And I see jarts. And it is, uh, if anyone's ever seen these, they're lawn darts, which are probably this big, with a steel rod at the tip. Big, you know, imagine a, a birdie from a, a, a badminton poking out, and then a handle. So I, I take it out of this box. I'm holding it in my hand. And this is like, you know, again, pre. And this is the first time I'm holding kind of a phallic object, you know? And like an extension of my own hand, and like, oh, this is what is possible, you know? Having like a, just something to, you know, dramatize, to accentuate the like, like a, or like an out, a point. The most dramatic thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> a scepter, a dick, a microphone. It, you know, it could be anything you wanted it to be. I said, this, I'll take this. Don't know what my brother got. And then we left. He smiled and said, great, thanks. You know, see you later. Walk up back to the lemonade stand, whatever. Next morning, right away. I like summer mornings. My mom would always water the flowers. She'd be hungover, and she would just do a perimeter around the house, watering the flowers, and I would just kind of, you know, enjoy it with her. <laughs> and I have these jarts in my hand. She doesn't really know I have them. She isn't aware of this whole thing. And I am walking around the front lawn going, if you want to be my lover, <laughs> and just chucking into the ground. And they just go in and they stab. I mean, it's just drama, you know? With your arm, you can just <laughs> and it stabs the earth. I mean, how homoerotic is that? <laughs> I'm doing this. Just if you want to be my lover, that was the choreo. I'd pick it up, move forward. If you want to be my lover, finally I do it. If you want to be my lover, right through my foot right through my foot. Big toe, pointer toe, right below that where there, is it still a foot? Right there. <laughs> I am breathing really deeply. I'm looking around. My mom is on the other side of the house, and oh my God, there's another half of the house before she will get to the front, and there is a steel rod in my foot. <laughs> I am in shock. I'm saying, Mom, 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 and you know, again, on the other side of the house. Finally, I see her, and she comes around watering the big bush over there. I am still, mom, 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 mom. And then she's making, she's furthering around the house, and her back is to me, and I go, finally, mom. And she turns around and goes, what? And I point at my foot. And she goes, oh, fuck. 
and drops the hose, runs into the house. I'm still standing there. The thing is still in my foot. Spent about two minutes. <laughs> I'm left alone. I'm thinking, oh, God, here we go. And I bend down, and I pull it out of my foot. That was the sound that did happen. There was a little... She picks me up, throws me in the car. We go to the hospital over the railroad, whatever. I'm in there. No one knows how this happened or what these things are or whatever. <laughs> I'm still holding the jart because, like, it's still my prop, you know? <laughs> I'm elevated for the rest of the summer. I learned what the word throbbing meant. <laughs> the foot's throbbing. Well, you know, visitors would come in. Well, it's still throbbing. It's a lot of throbbing pain. <laughs> Love that. My mom then finally kind of comes to a couple weeks later and is like, "How? wait a minute, where did you find these? And I said, the guy across the street. <laughs> and she goes, ha! And that's all that was said. <laughs> My foot's elevated. I internalize that as like, oh, God, you know, uh, what? There are no consequences. Did I do something wrong? Oh, this is a stranger. Confused. One night, I wake up, and I look across the street with the TV still on, and there's a red van parked outside of his house. I kind of can't really breathe, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's him, it's him, it's him. Oh, my God. Fall back asleep. From then on, on I internalize that, oh, wow, I escaped a pedophile. Hmm, survivor. I went in there. I got this game. Wow. That could have happened to me. Flash forward 10 years. I come back to my childhood home to get something before they tear it down, or whoever bought it tears it down. The man's house is gone. Leveled, flat, that hill is gone. It's just one flat little thing. And I said, what happened to the guy's house across the street? And he said, oh, yeah, he died. And I said, remember when he gave me those like lawn darts that were banned in 1950 that I then had and like, you know, potentially ruined my life. He was like, my mom said, wait, he gave you those things? And I said, yeah, I went over there and I almost was molested and then I got out of it. <laughs> she said, wait, almost was molested? What are you talking about? And I said, the red van, that guy pulled us into his house, was like creepy, give me some games, and then we left. We got out of there. He didn't do anything. My mom said, are you crazy? That is the sweetest man I ever met in my life. And I said, oh, how do you know that you're wrong? You know, I don't know. And she said, yeah, you know, he did this thing. I would see sometimes the TV was on, and I asked him, and I, in my mind, was like, oh, my God, you saw the TV, too. And she said, yeah, he lived there alone because his whole family had died in a car accident. And he had the TV going at all times so he didn't feel alone in his house. And he had a bunch of games, because every Sunday, his family would play a big game and have people over, and they would you know, have a great time. And I'm thinking, well, OK, so I'm not a survivor anymore. <laughs> I guess I'm just a lucky kid that had a lovely, kind old man across the street. <laughs> lucky me.
I used to teach ukulele lessons out of my apartment. That was my job for like six years, which is kind of funny to think about. But I was teaching mostly adults, and it was just they would find me because I was high up on the uh, internet search. If you searched ukulele New York, um, I was the one who came up. So <laughs> I, would get, I would get emails every day from like random people to take ukulele lessons from me, and that was my job. Um, and one time, after I'd been doing this for many years, I guess this was probably in like 2011 when I was, uh, was 31, um, this, uh, this British man showed up. He was in his 60s. And he, as soon as he walked in, I was like, this is the most incredible man. Like, he was so beautiful and charismatic and funny and happy and like, and charming. He, um, he was just, actually, he's not British, he's Welsh, but uh, you know, I would have responded to him as British at the time. Um, but uh, his name was Roger. And I was just like in total awe of him. He was the most charming person I'd ever encountered. And so he, he said he was going to, he's in a play that was like a, a, a Shakespeare kind of like parody thing um, where he wanted to learn to play a couple songs on ukulele um, that had Shakespeare's uh, poetry set to music. So I was teaching him just these two songs for this play, but he'd never played an instrument at all, but he could sing. Um, so I, you know, I taught him his first lesson and it was cool. And then afterwards we like hung out and talked about Shakespeare and theater and stuff for like an hour. And I was just in, like enthralled by him. He was so cool. Like the coolest person I'd ever met. And when he left, I was like, God, I hope he comes back. Because <laughs> when somebody leaves, you never know if they're going to come back. You know, <laughs> there's no way of knowing. So, so then he came back and he came back for another lesson and another one. And, and eventually we were, you know, we were hanging out every week. Uh, for about a month, and every lesson we would talk for like an hour after, and I was just like looking forward to it all week. He was just like, like I was just uh, amazed by him. Um, and it was funny because, it, you know, I don't usually like men very much in general, um, but like this guy was just the coolest guy. I was just, uh, you know, in love with him in this, you know, f funny situation. Um, so, uh, and every time he left, I was like, God, I, what if he never comes back? Oh my God. <laughs> like he's so incredible. So, so then maybe like the fourth or fifth time we hung out, I asked him like, so what's your story? Like, why are you in New York? Like, what's your, like I asked him about himself and he explained that, uh, he was like, oh, well, you know, I came to New York because I was on this TV show Cheers. Um, and I was like, you were on Cheers? And uh, this is also weird. I've never seen Cheers, so this mean, means nothing to me. I just know it's famous. Um, and he's like, yeah, I, I played this, you know, this character Robin Colcourt on Cheers, and that's why I originally came to New York. I was a theater actor before that um, in England. You know, I, I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I was like, you were in the Royal Shakespeare Company? Isn't that like, you know, with like Ian McKellen and Judi Dench and, you know, Ben Kingsley? And he's like, yeah, yeah, Judi Dench played my wife like 40 times. And I was like... And he said, ben, ben Kingsley and I started the same day. And I went, wait a minute. Like, you, you mean the 60s and 70s you spent in the Royal Shakespeare Company in England? He's like, yeah, I played Hamlet and everything. And I was like, what is going on? Wait, what's, what's happening? And it turns out that Roger is one of the most famous Shakespearean actors. His name's Roger Reese, okay? Uh, he's much more famous in England. Um, you've actually seen him probably in lots of stuff because he's in stuff all over the place. But I, most of it that I hadn't really registered. He, I guess his most famous role is he's in Robin Hood Men in Tights, the Mel Brooks movie. He plays the Sheriff of Rottingham. Um, and that, if you've seen that, if you ever watched The West Wing, which I've never seen, I guess he's the British ambassador, which apparently is a role that people love. Um, but he's in tons of movies, you know, like uh, 
And and the big thing he did, I guess, he said the reason he stayed in New York after Cheers was he did this version of Nicholas Nickleby where he played Nicholas Nickleby on stage that won a, he won a Tony and it was like a big like a huge thing that everyone loved and they made a huge mini series out of it and that he fell in love with this his husband Rick um, while he was here for that and that's why he stuck around essentially and hadn't really been back to England as a theater actor since he does all kinds of stuff here. And I was just in, like freaking out about this, you know, um, like, of course, this is the coolest guy I've ever met. Of course, he's a famous Shakespearean actor. I had no idea. This is like wild. So I kept teaching him and I just liked him more and more. At one point, maybe we'd, we'd been doing this for like maybe five months or something. And he was like, um, and he was like, Michael, I'm so sorry. I, I can't take lessons anymore. He kept doing it after he finished this play. Um, he was still taking these lessons from me. Um, and, I, and he said, I can't take lessons anymore because I have to go back to London for like my return to the London stage, like after 25 years to do Waiting for Godot with Ian McKellen. Um, I'm taking over for Patrick Stewart, who's also their friend from the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I was like, you know, I played it pretty cool this whole time, partially because it's like, you know, you don't tell men your feelings about them. Like you don't tell men that you love them. You know, I don't know how any of you do it. Any of you who like date men, um, it's like there, it just is not a thing that feels okay. Like it feels like he's going to freak out. Um, <laughs> also, <laughs> um, like, so I don't think he knew how much I liked him. I don't think he knew. Um, um, and, and also he was famous. So like, you know, you don't tell famous people how much you love them or how much you admire them or something that, that also seemed awkward. But at this point, when he told me he was not going to take lessons anymore because he was going to go do waiting for Godot, I just cracked, you know? And I was like, well, can I, can I come? <laughs> like, like if, if, if I can, if I can get to London, like, can you get me in? And he was like, oh yeah, if, if you come to London, I'll, I'll get you front row seats. He said he'd get me the queen box seats. Was the, which also sounded kind of like a joke. He said, you'd sit in the queen box seats, um, which actually there are queen box seats because he was doing it in the theater where Oscar Wilde had had all of his plays and it's like one of the most incredible theaters in London. Um, it's like from a zillion years ago, incredibly old, prestigious theater. Um, so there are actually box seats for the queen. Anyway, so he said, yeah, I'd get you the queen box seats. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll figure out if I can go to London. He's like, that would be grand. That would be great. Like he was so charming. So he left and I was like, I had no money. I was teaching ukulele lessons out of my apartment. There was no way I could buy a plane ticket or justify buying a plane ticket to London. And also, I didn't, couldn't even afford to miss any lessons. So if I was going to do it, I would have to do it for a weekend where I would miss like a couple lessons. And that would be the most I could survive, you know. So I didn't have any money, but I did have a credit card. And I could probably put like $1,000 on the credit card, which I had no means of ever paying off, as far as I could tell. I would just hold on to it until somehow I made money. Um, that was my plan. So I was thinking about this actually quite seriously, you know, and I started talking to some friends about it and being like, you know, I, I want to go see my Shakespearean actor friend in, with, in Waiting for Godot with Ian McKellen. Um, and they were like, that's amazing. You've got to do it. And I was like, well, you know, um, uh, okay, first of all, I feel like I should note something about Waiting for Godot itself. If you, if, I don't know if you know the play Waiting for Godot. It's pretty famous. But if you don't, I can explain it pretty well. It's really one of the greatest things ever. You should see Waiting for Godot if you can. But it's like an absurdist, surreal play about two friends who are waiting by a, a, a leafless tree for somebody named Godot to show up. And it's very vague what Godot is even going to do for them or why they're waiting. And they don't even seem to know. So it's very surreal. But it's very funny. 
So these two guys are waiting for Godot the whole time, and they're just trying to frantically pass the time and figure out what to do with their time while they wait. So it's just two guys on this empty stage with a leafless tree trying to figure out how to pass time. Okay? It's, and it gets really excruciating and really moving and really funny, and it's like pretty dark just watching these guys wait for hours. You know, and they might be going crazy. Um, it's, it's an amazing play. And, and uh, um, finally, at the end... I'm going to give away the ending. <laughs> Sorry. Spoilers on the very famous thing. But anyway, at the end, uh, they basically decide Godot is not coming. And they look at each other and they go, well, let's go. And they don't move. And then the curtain falls. Okay. <laughs> um, that is the end of Waiting for Godot. So um, when, when Samuel Beckett wrote this play, okay, um, and, and they first did it in America, the, one of the guys was Bert Lahr, who plays the Cowardly Lion in The Wizard of Oz. Okay, um, Bert Lahr was one of the guys. And he says, and they, they had this plan that they were going to perform Waiting for Godot for the first time in America in prisons, okay, uh, for all the prisoners. And Bert Lahr asked Samuel Beckett, he's like, look, I got to say, I don't understand your play. I'm like a clown, like a vaudeville clown. I don't understand what you're talking about. It's really weird. And Samuel Beckett says, look, all you do is you deliver the lines as you're written and get as many laughs as you can. Play it like a vaudevillian and just fall over whenever you need to be a clown, even in this excruciating thing of just watching people in despair, going mad, waiting to see if this person shows up. Just get as many laughs as you can. And so they performed this way in the prison. And apparently it's like watching Bert Lahr get as many laughs as he can. All the reports were everyone is just sobbing. Watching these clowns try to, do, getting laughs theoretically while they're waiting forever and this person is never coming. Um, I always thought it sounds like a very moving thing to see. Um, but I love the play. So anyway, this is what I'm going to see, right? Um, I want to see Roger and Ian McKellen in Waiting for Godot. So I'm telling my friends about it. I'm like, so I really want to go, um, but I don't really have the money to go. I'm going to put it on a credit card, you know. And besides, like, maybe he was just being polite, you know. Like, I don't even know really if Roger meant that he would get me. I mean, he's famous. Like, what if I show up and he, like, doesn't get me in? Like, I'm kind of going to hang out with him, you know. And they're like, really? You think that he wouldn't, like, how well do you know him? And I was like, not really at all. Like, I, I just teach him music lessons. And he's, he told me he couldn't take lessons. And he, I told him the story. And they were, like, getting more and more uncomfortable as I talked about this. And they were like, well, you don't trust him to do things he says he's going to do? And I was like, I, like, laughed grimly because I didn't trust anyone to do what they said they were going to do. The people I was talking to, I would never trust. <laughs> okay? And this is partially, I guess it's worth setting up that, like, I have been flaked on so much in my life. I don't know if, if you guys have been flaked on as much as me, but man, do I not trust people to show up, okay? Like, that is not a thing in my life. People do not show up, okay? I never trust that someone's gonna show up. I, my life is full of like caution and safe things that I've made in case someone doesn't show up. Um, to give you just a few examples, like when I was a teenager, um, this girl that I liked a lot um, invited me to visit her at college when I was in college. Um, and I was supposed to stay with her for the weekend, and I got there, and she basically pretended to get sick so I wouldn't have to, so she wouldn't have to hang out with me. Um, and I was like, "But I don't have anywhere to go." And she was like, "I'm just really sick. I can't." And so I like had to, like, pound the pavement in New York. I luckily found someone that would let me stay with them, but like, she just ditched me in New York and didn't even care. Um, and uh, uh, you know, and then she never spoke to me again. 
Um, so, so that's one thing that happened. Um, but there are like dozens of things like that that happened. Even um, my, my, um, there was one woman I went out with for a little while who I was really falling in love with when I was like 22. And, uh, and it, we went on a bunch of dates and it seemed like everything was going great. And then she asked me to have dinner with her. And then I got there and she wasn't there and she wasn't responding to my messages. And um, I was really worried about her. So I like went to her house. Um, and she like freaked out when I showed up at her apartment and was like, you're like, what are you doing? Like, you're stalking me? Like, what's going on? I was like, wait, I was supposed to never speak to you again? And that was actually the plan? Anyway, I talked her into being with me and she was my girlfriend for six and a half years. But that was, that was uh, like the kind of stuff that I endured as a person, okay? Like, I had been flaked on so much. So it does not that crazy to think that, um, that someone might flake on me, you know? And this was just a high stakes flaking situation. And I couldn't very much tell him like, so this is all the money I have. In fact, it's all the money I don't have. So please get me into the show. I couldn't tell him how important it was to me. I love you. <laughs> and I'm trying to become your friend forever by coming to the, I couldn't say any of that. So I just had to be cool and be like, yeah, I'm coming to London. I happen to be in London. <laughs> Can you get me in? You know? So I didn't trust that it was going to happen at all. Um, and so my, I was telling my friends this and they were all very uncomfortable. Definitely were like, maybe you shouldn't go. Like that doesn't sound very promising, you know? And, and they were like, and, and one of them was like, well, you said that the play is about people waiting for somebody to show up. Like what happens in the play? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I'm, so I'm essentially going to see Waiting for Godot, a play about people waiting, and I'm going to wait and see if the person comes and gets me into the show about people waiting. Um, and and the, the show's uh, conclusion doesn't bode well for me. So, um, <laughs> so, so anyway, I just did it. I put the money on a credit card. I bought a flight, and I flew there. I knew a guy who was in school who would let me stay on his couch for the weekend, um, and uh, it was only for a weekend. And I got there, um, and I wrote to Roger, um, and I, I said, hey, um, I'm in London. Can you get me into the show over the weekend? And, and, uh, and he did write me back. And he said, yeah, you can, you can come this date. You know? And the funny thing is, I still didn't really believe it. I was like, you know how people forget to put you on the list all the time? Like, what if I get there and I'm not on the list? Like, I can't be like, I know Roger Reese. Like, it's going to make me look like a stalker. There were posters for this all over London, like the greatest theatrical thing that's ever happened. Roger Reese back at the London stage with Ian McKellen. I was just going like, oh my God, what if like, no one's ever going to believe me? How am I even going to get backstage to hang out with him? He said, tell them you want to hang out after, like come backstage after. And I was like, they're not going to believe me. They're going to think I'm like a liar or something. Um, so so um, I went with my, this friend who was letting me stay there. We went to the play, um, and you know, I was telling him, I don't know if he, it's really, I, I won't believe it until the tickets are in my hand. You know? And uh, we got there, and the tickets were there. And so we had front row seats. They weren't the queen box seats. Apparently, Roger told me later they were taken. <laughs> um, that was too last minute. <laughs> um, but so we watched the show, and it was the most moving, amazing thing. Seeing my friend be in Waiting for Godot, it was just crazy. It was so incredible. And also these two old men running around and screaming and doing all these comic things. It was just amazing. Um, and, uh, and so we went backstage and hung out with Roger, and he, he was like, hey, you want to come stand on the stage? And so we went and stood in the Waiting for Godot set, with the bare tree and looked at like the empty theater. And he was telling me all these stories from the theater's history. He's like, this is where Oscar Wilde was standing when everyone threw stuff at him because they found out he was gay, you know? And like, this is where I saw Peter O'Toole and I saw Laurence Olivier and I saw, he was like telling me all these incredible things. 
Um, and, uh, and I didn't think to have Bajir take a picture of us. Like, we should have done a picture where we were pretending to be in Waiting for Godot, you know, in the set. That would have been so great to have that picture. But I didn't even think of it. It was such an amazing thing. I wasn't even thinking of having a picture taken. So, you know, we, we hung out with him and said goodbye, and it was just like this incredibly magical thing. Um, so... So anyway, um, I went back home or whatever. This experience happened. Um, and eventually, and I didn't really see Roger. You know, he's busy with all his, his wildlife. You know, he didn't continue taking lessons. And eventually he died. And it was crazy because, like, people have died. Like, I've known a lot of people have died. But he was, like, the person I loved the most that died, even though I, like, barely know him, you know? And I was very, like, broken up about it. So I went to this memorial they had for him. And it was like in like they dimmed the lights of Broadway for him and stuff. And this like had this huge memorial where everybody was like, you know, so moved by by Roger and all these amazing stars were doing songs for him and everyone was like crying while doing their songs. It was just so incredible. And everybody was telling stories about Roger, and every story was like Roger said this thing that he was gonna do, and I thought he was like being polite, but then he showed up two years later and he had actually done the thing. You know, and it was like everybody there had a story about how Roger had shown up. You know, like it was so incredible that he, he had a life where he always showed up, which I just think so few people do, you know. Um, and so so anyway, I'm thinking all the time about how like when whenever you have a relationship with someone or you want someone to be in your life or, or show up for you in some way, you're gambling. You know, I've always felt it was gambling like you're going, oh, well, what are the chances this person will show up? You know, like I'll just gamble on it. And sometimes you win. And there are people who I think, gamblers who win enough that they feel like they actually are just having an exchange, that it's not a gamble anymore. You know, they, they feel like, oh, no, those are exchanges. The person will show up and they believe it. But I insist that it's always gambling. And you're very lucky if you actually, you, if you gamble and you win and you, you know, and, and you find a person that actually will show up. Um, and I, I think it's really great if you can be the kind of person that shows up. But 
live musical performance by Kelly Zutro of WET. Um, and before that, you heard stories from Peter Smith and me, Michael Levitin. Um, and uh, I'm speaking right now over the Tell theme song uh, written by a fool. This is John Coward playing harpsichord <laughs> with Ian Underwood on bass and Chris Egan on drums. Um, and uh, you're about to hear a special live version of 
written by a fool from the Tell live series uh, by Joanna Sternberg uh, in a moment. So uh, the Tell podcast is produced by Gabriel Galvin, uh, who also does Sound of the Tell. Um, and uh, that's at Four Foot Studios in Brooklyn, uh, where we do this together. Um, and uh, if you want to find out more about the Tell, go to thetellstories.com. You can find out when the live series is happening. Uh, so this was the 20th episode, incredible, uh, episode number 20 of The Tell. your story the story you won't tell but I witness how it unspooled it's brilliant cause it's written by a fool oh yeah you cried a character the girl who broke the It's brilliant cause it's written by a fool You're riding by accident You're crying for lack of sense At the ending when the plot is spent You're the only one who don't understand just what it meant Oh yeah, tearjerker from certain points of view Teaches a lesson they should read in school It's brilliant cause it's written by a tragedy it would be if you were mine. I love that lyric. I don't care about your grammar. I like your twists and turns. Are you a genius or a dunce on a stool? It's brilliant cause it's written by a fool. It's brilliant cause it's written by a fool Brilliant cause it's written by a fool